Welcome to ACA Media's podcast series, Talking Television in a Time of Crisis. I'm Samantha Shepard, the Mary Armstrong Modesky 80 Assistant Professor of Cinema and Media Studies in the Department of Performing and Media Arts at Cornell University. And I'll be moderating and participating in this episode on tactics. We're very thankful to be part of the ACA Media podcast sponsored by SCMS and the Journal for Cinema and Media Studies. The Talking Television podcast series started last summer under the title Talking Television in a Pandemic, inspired by the desire to explore television's role in mediating the intersecting pandemics of COVID-19 and anti-Black violence. In the light of these and other ongoing crises, a new season of Talking Television started this fall, Talking Television in a Time of Crisis. In this series, we bring together media scholars and media makers to think and talk through about how both television, and I'm talking about across all forms from network to streaming TV, and television studies, from work on production to text to reception, may best speak to these peculiar and, well, surreal times. The first episode of this new season was on politics, and it focused particularly, if not exclusively, on television, the election, and national politics. This episode, taking up other ways of conceiving and mediating the political, is on tactics, on how we might, through various actions as producers and consumers, makers and critics, scholars and viewers, intervene in television and interrelated media. To talk about these issues, we have a great group joining us. First is Jonathan Gray, Professor of Media and Cultural Studies in the Department of Communication Arts at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Hi, Samantha, thanks for having me. Thanks, Jonathan, so glad to have you here. And up next, we have Daniel Marcus, Professor of Communication and Media Studies at the Center for Art and Media at Goucher College. Hi, Samantha. Hey. <laughs> Up next, we have Quinn Miller, who is an associate professor in the Department of English at the University of Oregon. Hi. Hi. <laughs> awesome. And finally, last but certainly not least, we have Eve Ung, associate professor in the School of Media Arts and Studies and in the Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies Program at Ohio University. Hi, Samantha. Thanks for having me. Wonderful. We are delighted to have them all here with us. And we're going to kick it off with just an opening quick question. How is everyone feeling about what's happening on TV and the world post-election? And well, how are you personally responding to this post-MSNBC, CNN, Fox News blitz? Can I confess that throughout the election, I actually did not watch television news I only get my news online um, and I only get it through news websites. So I was obsessively updating New York Times and CNN and even, yes, Fox News, just to see what they were saying. Um, but because I didn't watch the election on television, I also haven't perceived a big difference <laughs> post-election. Yeah, Jonathan here, I, I, kind of like Eve, I, I, I cable cut and... Um, it's weird. I, I, I watch a lot of television news, but not on television. Only what CNN gives me or what friends embed in Facebook. I, I find extended news in, in this time so stressful and anxiety inducing that um, I, I almost need to, uh, to keep away from it and, and have short, uh, sharp interactions with it, where, which I can flee from quickly. 
This is Dan, and uh, I actually was watching a lot of election coverage, mainly MSNBC, sometimes CNN. Now I'm beginning to taper off, and I'd like to taper off, especially because two days ago I was kind of channel surfing, and I was on. I just clicked onto CNN, and the host said something was terrifying, and I didn't really want to be terrified at that moment, so I switched to MSNBC, and the host said something is terrifying. So I, I think I'm going to cut back now. Thank you. Quinn, how about you? I'm after... Uh, being an NPR hater for a long time, my news is mainly from Wisconsin Public Radio, but I've cut back a bit on that even. Um, and then a mix of Twitter, a Twitter that I had assembled to try and stay in touch with local protest stuff in Eugene, Oregon and Portland, Oregon. How about you, Samantha? I know personally, um, I extended the 25 days of Christmas to include the moment after the election. So we're on day I don't know, 45 of Hallmark movies, Lifetime movies, and Hulu movies, and Netflix movies that are all Christmas-themed, which are all also unaware of crises, racism, feminism, just so many things. So I have just thrown myself into a deep, beautiful world um, of really off-mixed pairs, um, falling falling in love with, you know, the seasonal backdrop of, of I guess, Vancouver, maybe Toronto, um, sometimes Georgia, who knows. Um, but yeah, I have definitely responded by just going deep, deep into, um, deep into worlds of fantasy. So I think that's actually really good because if that means we haven't been focusing hopefully as much on politics, we might also think a little bit about um, our tactics of watching television differently, um, depending on our own engagement with the the chaos post-election. So how can we best analyze and perhaps address the power of television, particularly in times of crisis and controversy? And by that, I mean, What impact might various practices of production and reception have on our viewers and communities on televisual aesthetics and televisuality, as well as textuality, um, on politics and ideologies? What do you all think? Can I bring in a sort of music example? I mean, it's not strictly television, but I don't know how many of you are Taylor Swift fans. Don't hate me. (laughs) Haters gonna hate. Haters gonna hate. (laughs) I don't know if we've got the licensing rights to say too many lines. Oh, no, I'm just kidding. We we, we Um, can totally do this. But anyway, I think you all know she she released a new album in July, Folklore, with like less than 24 hours notice, right? Like usually she has this like months long dropping Easter eggs, hinting that she's releasing something. Is it a single? Is it an album? You know, what is it? But she didn't do that with Folklore, right? And it was July, so it was like but about four months after sort of heavy strict lockdown in a lot of places in the US and other places. And so I feel like one thing that I heard at the beginning was like, oh my God, like all I've been doing during the pandemic is like sitting in my pajamas and drinking and, you know, getting depressed and she's made a whole new album. Right. But then a few weeks pass and after sort of sort of like, wow, this is really great. I think that this also this kind of other, discourse which is sort of 
why do we have to be extra productive during the pandemic? You know, learning new skills and learning a new language or being, if you're sort of a fan, sort of being extra creative or extra productive. And so in the sort of fandoms I'm in, I think there was also more than just this, you know what, like the pandemic has taken so much mental and emotional energy. I just want to consume media, right? I don't want to have to be as engaging. And I think that a few people in sort of previous episodes of this podcast have said, I went back to sort of comfort TV, like TV of the 90s and the 2000s, um, that wasn't necessarily like quality TV that is densely plotted and so on. So I don't know if, if anyone else feels that that's been this like back and forth. Yeah, I, I guess thinking Eve to some of what you were saying, Taylor Swift's folklore is on my list from student work this term, uh, but I haven't quite made it there yet. But yeah, super productive, extra productive, productive, you know, is, is kind of way out of my sights for sure. And um, at the same time, was really immersed with teaching students who were really, you know, we were challenging each other's points of view, uh, which is something that I also think is important. I think I have, this is Dan, um, I think I've been um, really attracted to ensemble television, like ensemble casts in this time of isolation. So big casts with like communities of people or the special Zoom casts from big casts of movies or TV just to kind of uh, get that sense of a pseudo community going again, um, particularly when I haven't been teaching. So like in the summer. And then when I was teaching, it wasn't so bad because I was Zooming with my students all the time. Um, I think one of the powers of TV in a political sense uh, in this time of crisis is simply to validate certain kinds of points of view, which is particularly important when there is a kind of breakdown of social consensus and a breakdown of social consensus as to what actually is reality or what is real. So in a time of massive gaslighting and all of that, I think watching TV from uh, somebody who you agree with or who shares your sense of reality is, is actually important. It's kind of comforting, but I think it's actually also important. I think there's a good example going back to the early Bush administration, actually, when Jon Stewart really played a huge role that every night he was on the air to show the lies of the Bush administration. And he had the videotape. You know, he could cut to the videotape of seeing Dick Cheney saying two completely contradictory things. And people at that time, I think, were really comforted by the idea that, like, I'm not wrong. You know, they really are just lying all the time. And here's somebody who's actually collecting the videotape and showing it. And even Norman Lear said that's why he watched Jon Stewart and he found that really valuable at the time. So I think now when we've got an even bigger breakdown of kind of social consensus on reality. And we've got two different camps that have completely different epistemologies. I think watching people who seem to validate your particular point of view, whichever camp you're in, is a pretty powerful thing. Jonathan here. So I had a really weird entry point into the pandemic in another way, and that the very last thing I did before I went on lockdown was my last in-person Peabody judging session after six years. Um, and, and Peabody was a weird experience, right? Because they judge, we judge so many things that it, it meant over the last six years, I've watched way more documentaries and news um, than I ever did normally. And so I kind of needed a detox um, and was just watching complete trash. And I'm not going to share what I was watching <laughs> because it was so bad. Um, but I'm now coming back online. And 
I, I kind of think like docs actually are, are an important way forward. I, I, I think that first, whenever I met the documentarians, they're, they're the most like academics, right? They talk like us, they're nerds like us, um, they're weird like us, but also the deep dives into the, the topics that they engage with. I ended up thinking over those six years that we really haven't um, done enough with documentary and media cultural studies. Perhaps we've sort of ceded that to journalism studies. There definitely are people working on it, Dan amongst them. Um, and so I don't mean to suggest that work's not being done, but it, it feels like there's um, uh, documentaries are something that all of us could be engaging in more, particularly now that as viewers, and I think this speaks to the sort of tactics side of what's different is any of us who are on you know streaming services, all of our viewing matters now. Like we, in a past era, we know that there were these special people who had Nielsen sets and when they watched something, what they watched mattered. Um, and the rest of us only mattered in as much as we could convince those people to watch certain things and sort of tick those metrics up. But now that we do matter, albeit small, and we need to aggregate ourselves, I, I think we need to think more about the sort of the ethics of, of what we are engaging with and and what we're informing ourselves with. And I think the docs are something that like we should all be jumping into. I mean, there's a warning, which is that they are not good during a time of pandemic because they are anxiety inducing. I, I now know all the things that are wrong with the world from like the bees dying to, you know, all the things. Um, but but there's an I, I think there's a sort of ethic of, of, of engaging in that, not just so that we're informing ourselves, but so that we're letting you know Netflix and HBO know that that these things matter and that they need to still keep investing in the kind of investigative uh, work that really is is going to be as important um, as anything that we could do as academics. Absolutely, and I think one of the things, even just from hearing everyone's answers to this question, and one thing I've been thinking about in terms of the power of television is that. Right now, I feel constantly in a perpetual present because we have done so very little to <laughs> combat the virus that could potentially make a lasting future look or a future in general look um, on the horizon. But the one comfort in not having a future to, to look forward to right now, where it's like, I can't put a bit on it in 2023. I don't know. I'm just going to braid this hair up and slap a wig on it. Let my hair just grow and thrive until it comes back out. But the one thing I've enjoyed about living in a perpetual present is the sort of drop of television from the past, right? So because all of these like streaming networks are like, okay, we're going to start producing more and more content. I've got to have Apple. I've got to have Peacock. I don't know any of the passcodes to all of the various things I do. If I lose LastPass, I lose everything. But I've appreciated that Netflix has added so much Black programming, which was so gone from this ability to sort of luxuriate in my old viewing habits. So it's like allowed me to do these interesting returns um, and rethinking of text that I originally really, really loved for different reasons. And I was rewatching Moesha and I was like, God, I love Brandy, but I can't do this. And But then I was like rewatching the Parkers and I was like, oh my God, Countess Vaughn is a national treasure. We have done her so wrong. And I say that because it's, there's also something that in those drops, and we know those drops because those were the particular black drops. So everybody was pointing out, okay, Moesha, the Parkers, girlfriends, sister, sister are coming on. Finally, black people are being hailed. And 
it's an interesting thing of feeling so away from everyone, but having this kind of community moment where it's like, if you grew up and you were like 12 to 14 watching these shows, this was a life that you wanted. And you finally get to relive that as a 35 year old. And it's really, really interesting to to be able to have this love affair with your past in a world that feels very uncertain of what kind of future you may have. So it's something I have been thinking about. But I've also, and I was thinking of what Eve was saying about people going to comfort and also the idea that viewers matter and how it's changing all industries from TV to music to, you know, it's changing the landscape of how we think about people really controlling media industries in a different kind of way. And so I think we want to think about that in terms of our tactics as we move to, um, to another kind of question, which is um, related, but a slight pivot from our, our previous one, well, which specifically is what new strategies and tactics have emerged in our current multimedia and political landscape, or what moments from our history might best guide us in devising media tactics for today, and how might we envision and struggle for alternative televisual futures? I have an answer that also starts with music. <laughs> um, <laughs> I will attribute some of this to my daughter who became a huge BTS fan this year. BTS is a K-pop band. I think maybe the biggest K-pop band at the moment. And I think so Michelle Cho, in one of the season one episodes of this podcast, one of the hosts brought up the BTS fan-led, let me call it actions rather than activism um, at this point. <clears throat> one of the actions was during the Black Lives Matter uh, protests, I think it was the Dallas police said, hey, if you have any footage of rioters, demonstrators doing violent, illegal things, send us your videos. And the BTS fans sent their videos of just like BTS concert footage. The other thing that they did was the Trump rally in Tulsa. They apparently had a way in to get a lot of those tickets and then not show up. So <clears throat> those two, I think, were the most prominent. BTS, the band itself, they publicly said, hey, we're donating $1 million to Black Lives Matter. And then I think within a day, it was a really short amount of time, but the BT, some BTS fan group matched that, like from the fans, right? So one thing I was thinking about was to what extent, like, <clears throat> do these sort of single or like single instances or like two or three instances of really flashy actions matter, right? Because I think, you know, as scholars of, you know, a critical approach to like wanting to change things for the bad, better, a lot of it is sort of premised on the assumption that things should be changing at a sort of structural level or at a, at a sort of more significant level than just these single actions. And I think it's easy to be cynical about those actions, right? Like if, <clears throat> as soon as BTS uh, the band had, uh, did the donation and BTS, the fans had those actions. I was like, okay, I'm going to, I'm just going to wait and see like in a week, there's going to be articles saying these fandoms is actually quite problematic around race. Right. And it's not just BTS fandoms. It's a lot of television based fandoms as well um, that are, you know, dominated by white fans or don't acknowledge black fans or, you know, a lot of <clears throat> issues. And so this can't wipe those this can't, this doesn't address those problems at all. But on the other hand, I wouldn't want to dismiss the significance of those actions either, right? So the fact that a major group that isn't even based in the US, right, that isn't even a major sort of English language music group 
can come out on social media and say, we support this movement. I think it matters. It doesn't mean that it's sort of like the problem is solved, but I found it really significant. And I, I don't know how much it means that K-pop in general has shifted because I'm not immersed in that fandom, but it made me, you know, it made me sort of look and, and want to know more about what's going on there. I think that there's a, a number of different things going on, often that seem to be going in opposite directions. And I think we just have to, I guess, think dialectically, uh, to use a very old-fashioned term at this point. And, and I think part of it is in thinking about how does information get out and what are the conditions of reception? And on the one hand, we have people during this time binging a lot right, on media. And that is not particularly good for, let's say, alternative media, because there's very few alternative media producers who both produce enough stuff to have like a lot of binging of their particular material and that also make work that seems bingeable. Like most alternative media producers, uh, when it's a substantial production, tends to, to have kind of one big discrete production. There aren't a whole lot of series, uh, except among really indigenous producers who have their own TV stations around the world and, and radio stations. Um, so on the one hand, uh, alternative media producers are kind of out of step from binging culture. On the other hand, we also get a tremendous amount of information from social media, which is in these bite-sized chunks. Um, and that is something that alternative media can do and you know, put stuff out on Twitter, put stuff out on YouTube, and then use social media. And that's what a lot of movements have been doing you know, really in the last 10, 15 years is figuring out how to use social media for these purposes. So I think in the pandemic, you have more people binging than maybe ever, which has been problematic maybe for alternative media. And on the other hand, you also still have this incredible amount of social media that is being used for movements, you know, starting with Me Too and, and Black Lives Matter, um, I think in, in a lot of very successful ways. So you've got these kind of two movements. It would be nice to see more uh, work from alternative media or political producers that is bingeable, that does kind of enter into that universe. But it's it's always a problem with questions of scale, you know, and of scaling up to that. But I, I think that given how much people are binging now, it, it's territory that should be entered or thought about how that can be done. And that usually means creating new institutions that are ongoing, that are not just these momentary, oh, I've got a cell phone, I'll make a tape, you know, or I'll, I'll post a video, but something that is more ongoing as an, on an institutional basis. The other thing that I think is kind of dialectical is that there's been a debate in alternative media circles and, and in media criticism in general as to how good is the internet for organizing there's uh, the criticism of collectivism and, and is it a substitute for real activism? And what we see really with Black Lives Matter is the combination where you can post these videos and you can use the new technologies and the dispersal of technological resources and then get people out on the street. So it's not really an either or. It's not a substitute for getting people out on the street. If you've got the right material, like cops shooting people on video, you can get thousands or maybe even millions of people out on the street still. And there is still a huge power to that, which may almost seem 
illogical. Like, why does it matter that people got on the street as opposed to other forms of activism? But there is something very visceral about that power and having embodied protest and seeing people out there that I think does get responses that other forms of like internet activism don't really do. I think I want to affirm really that point because the ongoingness of our various crises and controversies is that we are still living in a time of COVID. And it's been really interesting to see, as you pointed out, alternative media makers trying to to ethically make work and having to comment on how how is the, the team I'm working with tested? How have we quarantined and what work should even be made right now if we just talked about hyper productivity or people who are being, you know, productive or they had work banked up. And I'm even thinking about Black is King from Beyonce, right? You know, that's it was just like, oh, this was supposed to come out with that movie a long time ago. But now, you know, we, we've given this gift. But I, but I think there's something really interesting also to think about how perhaps one would consider, you know, more mainstream players are trying to respond to both the political atmosphere, but also um, our health crisis with the need to ongoingly address COVID, like some shows doing that um, as part of their narrative. And I'm thinking right now what's circulating on the on Instagram is people are re, um, reposting the scene of uh, um, from Blackish, where Tracy Ellis Ross's character is going in on her son, who's tired of of being cautious, um, and people are like, "This is exactly why we have to keep this conversation going." And um, and so I'm seeing this sort of engagement from mainstream, from more mainstream works, having to continue to have COVID be part of the dialogue, and that's of course not all works. Or in a slightly different point, this need for quote unquote healing. Like, you know, we all can come together as viewers. Um, and I, I just think we need to point out the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air situation. I mean, original on Viv, right? Replacement on Viv, dark skin, light, light skin on Vivs. Um, had this whole particular moment on HBO Max with the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air reunion. Um, and there's an interesting sort of tactic of being like, this is the time for us to heal all televisual wounds. This is a time of reunions. This is the time of return so we can then wild out once we're allowed to go back outside. And so I think there's an interesting kind of an interesting kind of tactic that's happening with, um, with more mainstream um, producers who are still feeling the need to produce content. That seems like a really important point about a particular mode of grieving as production, as reissue, as return. And yeah, in relation to the question of, you know, what is the televisual capacity for grief, for for reparation? Hearing about, you know, Eve, you bringing up the BTS actions and that kind of interference stuff. I mean, that kind of seems almost in that ballpark. I mean, it really makes me, brings me back to that mo- the moment of, hearing coverage of that and not really realizing at the time, I mean, until, yeah, this conversation, it seems like spectacular coalition politics that, you know, isn't that common um, in that form. And yeah, I have to say, I missed the the drop moment of the Moesha Parker's sister, sister, you know, and yeah, heard about it only again from a student after having seen the Black Lives Matter Netflix curation thing and being so skeptical of that. Yeah, no, Quint, you've hit on something really key. I think these sort of the ways in which also these media industries have tried to respond to these crises and controversies have included this interesting form of curation, um, like that they're trying to to do this. We'll teach you, of course, about race and its racism, but also this 
this particular kind of niche marketing um, that says black people, here is your bucket of content in case you were wondering where it was um, or, or finally buying the rights or securing the rights to, to that content is, is, of course, really, really interesting. Yeah, I couldn't believe it after the Parkers. I could not believe because, yeah, last fall I was teaching that and couldn't find, you know, it was just, just the whole, you know, so shocked at the lack of avail- availability and then the shift to that. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just I'm just fascinated in general with the um, particularly in the the pandemic moment. You've got the lurch to one direction of of and I was there. You know, I spent the first few months of the pandemic playing Animal Crossing as a way of like getting away from it all. Um, but then also like uh, I think that the at the other end of that spectrum and need to like deal with pain and suffering <laughs> and um, mm. like I revisited leftovers. But I also think of, you know, think of like Watchmen or Lovecraft Country as two shows really trying to deal with forms of pain and suffering um, at, a, at a broader societal level. And I, I think perhaps while it's a raw moment to deal with, with this for all sorts of reasons, not just the pandemic, of course, but I'm interested in that mode of telling that we're seeing bits more of here and there of media, television trying to sort of deal with much more sort of existential suffering. Quinn, you you mentioned sort of coalitional politics, um, even if it's just these um, single moments um, that made me think of how shows that uh, focused on police or police work, police officers, you know, all of those sort of types of programming have responded. I think a lot of you know, probably like Brooklyn, I don't watch the show, so I don't know if it's 99 or 99. 99, okay. Right. So those showrunners um, during uh, Black Lives Matter came out and said, yeah, we wrote already the first, what was it, four or eight episodes. We have to go back. We're going to go back and rewrite them. But because I follow a lot of queer media, one of the shows that premiered either in the fall or spring um, was Tommy. I don't know if anyone watched it. I didn't watch it, but it it was a network show that um, had Edie Falco as a lesbian police chief, right? Um, and Auto Straddle, which covers lesbian, bisexual, trans media, Heather Hogan gave it a very strong review. She was like, I've never seen a character like this. You know, you have Edie Falco, who has been in like prestig- prestigious series. You know, this is a network series. And so very sort of rara about it. Um, and a lot of critical, a lot of um, criticism in the comments was like, why is Autostraddle promoting police show, right? And after that, <clears throat> there was a, an amendment to the um, review that added, I don't know, like two paragraphs saying, we recognize the sort of um, historical violence of the LA Police Department against communities of color, et cetera, et cetera. That's a show that actually was just one and done. It didn't have to sort of deal with the, what are we gonna, how are we gonna write the next season? But I think that there has been more or greater visibility of queer fans and fans of color and also queer fans of color coming together during the Black Lives Matter protests to really strongly critique what kind of programming there is around that centers police or is centers police. And even if it's sort of critical of police is still centering police. Right. So part of the like abolish or defund the police in the sort of fan world I saw was just like, stop making police shows. Like, why, why do we need this many cop shows? If you bring up a really good point, not only if we're thinking about what kinds of responses and tactics that fans are um, having to 
to different TV texts, there's also this response we're having to an imagined future of what television producers will create and make in the wake of um, particularly the recent racial uprisings and the call to defund the police, abolish police, be more critical of the kinds of white savior and white supremacy narratives that are trafficked. I think one of the the things I want to ask and perhaps see if you all have noticed, has there been any kind of televisual activism that you have noticed? Um, any tactics? And Dan, you've mentioned some of this with alternative producers and Jonathan, you've mentioned with documentary um, producers, but anything specifically you want to point out to the listeners that you see kind of happening as an interesting counter tactic or counter narrative to particular kinds of televisual representation? And I say that with also the example I'll probably bring up, which is post the election when MSNBC knew that we could not not watch because they would not call the election. Um, the second the election was called, I turned that stuff off immediately and quickly went to Instagram because I wanted to see real live footage. Like the footage they were talking over, I could not handle. I wanted to hear the people in New York City singing WAP. I wanted to hear, you know, just like the the praise for the postal workers as they drove by. And it was just like this desire to say, you have, I now can, you know, free myself from this control and go to this, you know, people generated television looking for YouTube clips of celebratory moments. Um, have any of you all seen any other kind of counter televisual tactics or yourself engaged in any televisual activism that is in aware of this particular moment of crisis and controversy? I don't know whether I'd call this a conscious tactic on behalf of the producers, but they've, they've left their flank open for tactics, which is that right in the response to the pandemic, um, most of the major satirical shows kept running, but in living rooms and so forth. So, you know, Sam B gets her family to be her crew. Trevor Noah is still doing his work. And what I what interests me about this is it means there was a thriving online satire, but it now looks just like your daily show. It looks just like Sam B. And so I don't know if any of you seen like Blair Erskine um, in uh, go find her on Twitter. She does brilliant work down in Georgia, always uh, posting sort of videos of posing that she's like the the child of or the daughter of or the wife of some Republican politician who's just said something stupid. Um, but what she's doing looks so much like what the big mainstream satirists are doing that it just seems like they're all on the same page now. Um, and I, I, I'm excited and hopeful to see what that might mean for a sort of flattening of uh, allowing that like that satire doesn't just have to come from the likes of Jon Stewart and people who have been on Jon Stewart's show um, anymore. It, it, it's open to a, a wide variety of other people who can all do in their own living room what Trevor Noah can do in his, which is not a criticism of him. It's a it's a, you know, an opening for for others to sort of fill in that space. I think the logistics of production affect this a lot because a lot of people just have shut down production and they're just revving it up now. So we haven't seen, you know, an explosion of stuff. There's basically covering the street protests, which is a actually overutilized strategy of alternative media or left media is just to go and shoot protests. Um, but that was what was available. And then, as Jonathan says, these sorts of living room productions, what else can you do? So it, it'll be interesting what happens over the next year, because I think there are new productions revving up now and there have been protocols now 
on how to do these things safely. So it'll be interesting to see like what more fictional things come out or hybrid kinds of productions. But right now it's either go out and, and try to you know capture the protests or particularly this the summer or now shoot in your living room, whether you're Stephen Colbert or I haven't seen Blair Erskine, I'll definitely check that out, or Sarah Cooper, you know, people who have had an impact basically doing these kind of comic sketches from their living room. This isn't really about production per se, but um, in terms of responses um, that have to do with the, the production team or the creative team, I've noticed actors, <clears throat> actors of color, um, speaking out against their creative teams. So two shows that I follow, although I don't watch them anymore, um, The Bold Type, Aisha D, who herself is a, well, she's Australian, so she's like a black Australian, but she's, you know, been working in the US, but she plays a queer woman of color on the show, called out, well, a lot of people, right, on that show, but she called out the makeup and hair people for sort of saying they couldn't do her hair. She called out the fact that the writer's room is almost completely white. And controversially, her character, who is like the other two main characters, progressive, ended up dating, at least briefly, a white Republican character. And so there was a lot of like, how could they write, how could they be so tone deaf to write this storyline right now, right? In the times of Black Lives Matter, in the times of Republican is not just Republican, it's like Trump. So there was her. And then I think after that, Vanessa Morgan, who plays also a queer character of color um, on the CW show Riverdale, this was also in the summer, said there might be black characters on Riverdale, but we're always sidelined. We're used for diversity publicity for the network, and that's basically it. Um, and actually, the showrunner did come out and say, I'm sorry, you're right. You deserve better. We're going to do better. But season five, I think it's the season five, the next season of Riverdale hasn't aired yet, so you know, we'll see. But I think that the fact, you know, I think it's hard to, for actors to speak out when they're still on those shows, right? Because, you know, they're vulnerable. Um, so I think there's, these are just sort of two instances. So it's not necessarily a sea change, but it might sort of indicate some shift. So as we approach the end of our conversation, I want to really conclude with a final question, which um, many of you all also kind of hinted towards already in your commentary. But what are you most excited about for TV politics and tactics in 2021? One of the things I'm excited by um, is that the EU has forced Netflix and Amazon to put millions um, and, bil and billions in uh, Netflix's case into programming that isn't just American. I'm excited to see more. It's still nowhere near enough. Um, the algorithm still doesn't want me to see it. I have to fight the algorithm. Um, but I'm excited to see more international TV on, on American television sets and, and really hoping that as a tactic of viewership, if we start engaging with stuff that is not just American and that if we start getting our students to engage with that um, and we encourage others to do that, the television of 2021 and onwards doesn't just need to be yet more stories about American police in New York City. We can actually go to the rest of the world. I'm actually encouraged by a number of things that have happened this year in terms of responses 
either by individuals or by fans or even by networks. I think it was last month, CBS came out and said 50% of the participants on our reality programming are going to be people of color. So not even just like 10% or 25%, 50%, right? That's some, that's a, I think a major step to redress the imbalance of, you know, shows like The Bachelor always having like a white bachelor. Do I think that they're saying this out of the sort of goodness of their hearts? No, like a lot of this is about commercial interests, but I don't really care, right? I, I care that mainstream media is showing some shifts in terms of representation, partly in response to sort of viewer criticism. And if that's, you know, if that helps them make more money, that actually is, well, it's a double-edged sword, yes, but part of it is good because it means we'll get to see that representation. Um, I don't I don't know what is going to happen in 2021. I, I think what Eve said, I think there clearly is movement among casts um, in that way. But what else is going to happen in 2021? I mean, I, the most promising thing is that we don't have to worry about Donald Trump being president anymore. <laughs> so <laughs> there's that. But on the other hand, we still have that Trumpism as a movement. You know, so I'm not really thinking, oh, it's all solved. You know, I think we're in a really, really bad place as a country, both because of the pandemic and because of the right wing movement, among other things, you know, primarily. Um, how does television respond? I think there will be some really interesting things, but it's really hard to say right now what the mood will be in a year and what the responses will be that really catch on. You know, I think the industry is going to try to figure out how to respond to all everything that's happened in 2020. But we don't know how audiences are going to respond and what's going to catch on and what isn't. It's all, I think, quite unpredictable in that way. Yeah, it's hard to answer. I think back to Samantha, you're saying about just the present, you know, how difficult it can be to see into the future, trying to get through 2020 first. And, um, you know, if, if, if the industries are being asked to do a little bit more and there's work happening and, you know, sub the auto straddle thing, you know, like a little bit more accountability in different places that seem somehow dynamic in relation to that industry stuff. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to think about, you know, we've been talking about activism and tell the idea, the possibility of televisual activism and just some of the other terms maybe in play, you know, to think, you know, televisual about what's really not possible or could be possible. The media industrial complex is, you know, part of my vocabulary, but I'd never thought until this conversation specifically about a televisual industrial complex. And I think, yeah, just in terms of throwing out terms that are surfacing a little bit and trying to see the see the parameters of the conversation, you know, televisual abolition or televisual anarchy, question mark, question mark. I would love to see televisual anarchy and televisual abolition, um, especially around, you know, programming from lockup and um, whatever behind bars and the, you know, the fascination um, that we have and the titillization that people have out of seeing suffering um, of the incarcerated. I think the thing I'm most looking forward to is bringing back some more televisual aesthetics because I realize that if you leave people to produce their own work, we will realize how great a set designer is, how great a production designer is, who can really do lighting uh, because the Zoom look is not helping um, keep up celebrity <laughs> culture, star culture, beauty culture because the YouTube girls are coming for every single celebrity's next um, in terms of aesthetics. I prom I just, I cannot watch 
watch people look regular, I, I could do that in my life. So I just can't wait until I can get some stars back. Uh, but, you know, high octane makeup. I just, I want all of that. And so I want that all for you. And I really want to thank you all for speaking to these important issues. So once again, Jonathan Gray, Quinn Miller, Daniel Marcus, Eve Ung, thank you for your willingness to chat today. On behalf of the co-organizers for this podcast, Brandy Monk-Payton, Lynn Joyridge, and Hunter Hargraves, I also want to thank our sponsors, SCMS, ACA Media, the Malcolm S. Forbes Center for Culture and Media Studies, and the Department of Modern Culture and Media at Brown University, as well as the Department of Communication at Denison University, and the College of Arts and Letters at the University of Notre Dame. Many kudos also go out to Chris Becker and Bill Kirkpatrick for all of their help with recording and to Todd Thompson for, for providing the music and editing expertise for this series. Our next episode will be on economics, how the business of television from legacy media to streaming and online services changed in 2020 how production practices are being informed by the global public health crisis, and how to assess the renewed attention in the industry to issues of racial diversity, inclusion, and equity, and other such issues. We are very much interested in hearing your own views on these issues, so please send in questions and thoughts to us about today's episode on tactics and for the upcoming episode on economics. You can contact us by emailing us at talkingtelevisioninapandemic at gmail.com or contact us on Twitter with the hashtag, hashtag talkinapandemic. No G, the G is silent and also absent. It just doesn't exist. Talking a pandemic. Or find us and follow us on Facebook. Join the Acamedia Facebook group and then you can post questions. I'm Samantha Shepard with Talking Television in a Time of Crisis. And thanks so much for listening. Keep tuning in.